iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. I'm Tom Clark and joining me today is Gregor Robertson, Johnny Northcroft, and for the first time this season, our new signing, who will be joining us every Thursday, it's Martin Samuel. Welcome to the game, Martin. Thank you very much, Tom. You're delighted well. to be here. I'm delighted sure. to be here. I started the, the started the game um, with a, a lot of other Times colleagues in 2007. It was the reason I, they got me to be their chief football writer. And well, now you're back on the podcast. 16 years later, it's still going. Lovely so there stuff. we go. You must have done something right. Now we'll be getting to know Martin a little bit later on, including the time he nearly blew up the entire press pack on a trip oh, to South America. Yeah, so killed, save, save, yeah, yeah, save yeah, that yeah, for absolutely. later. We'll also be asking him about his scariest managerial meetings. <laughs> but we've got lots of football to talk as well. We'll be talking West Ham. We'll be talking Wolves. We'll be talking about that title decider at the weekend at the Etihad. Already we've got a title decider. Mm-hmm. That's right. After one game this season. But we're going to start with Manchester United. Um, they kicked off their season with a 1-0 win against Wolves at Old Trafford. But Martin, you, like many others, I think, weren't particularly impressed. Your no. column in the Times on Tuesday was headlined, Manchester United are still a work in progress and Eric Ten Hag is to blame. So tell yeah, us more. Know, well, the second part of that I thought was a little bit of an extrapolation. But, <laughs> um, Blaming the sub-editors uh, yeah, already. Yeah, exactly, already. yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll yeah. start. But... but um, yeah, I, I I was just looking at it and uh, I thought they were two players short. And the two players I thought mm. they were short were Declan Rice and Harry Kane. Mm. Um, and if they'd have got those two players and at various times in the last decade, um, we all thought that they were going to get uh, those two or one of those two players. Um, I thought if Manchester United had Kane in their forward line, if they had Declan Rice alongside... Um, alongside uh, Casemiro, um, you'd look at them and think, well, they're, they're, they're getting there. This is, this mm. is a title. This is a, a team that might contend a title, certainly with what we know about Manchester City now, that mm. they've got the next four months without Kevin De Bruyne. Um, and instead, you're looking at them, and let's be honest, Wolves are much the better team, and they shouldn't be much the better team. Yeah. I, mean, I know it's one game, and things improve, and things change, but you looked at Manchester United and thought, well, they've still got a way to go yeah. here. And, you know, the centre-forward that they've bought, the striker that they've bought, is 20 years old. He's played one season in... I was going to say in the top European league, but it's in any European league, really. I mean, it's 32 games for Atalanta, scored nine goals. You know, that is not a guy that will necessarily take the pressure off Marcus Rashford, whereas we all know Harry Kane. Mm. Yeah. And, and we all know he had a price now. Yeah. And it might have been a little bit more to Manchester United. And we all know Declan Rice had a price. Um, everyone at West Ham has got a price. So... <laughs> They, they were there 
they were there to, to be got. Mm. Could um, you have bought both of them though this summer? Could they have got both of them? Yeah. Within mm. staying within financial rules? Yeah. Well, if Chelsea can, can amortise and do what they're doing, um, I don't see why Manchester United can't do the same. Yeah. Well, they've um, had trouble shifting players, haven't they? I mean, yeah. Johnny, you're nodding along with everything Martin's saying. Do you, do you agree? I do. Um, I th I, I, the big one for me is Declan Rice, actually. I mean, it's not as if they haven't tried to explore how they came. As you wrote, Martin, it's been a sort of 10-year project almost, that one. I can forgive United or I can, I can understand United deciding that that would be too big a saga, Daniel Levy, all that kind of mm. stuff. Mm. Um, we don't know if Daniel Levy would have sold him to another English club. But I think you're bang on about um, Declan Rice because the big hole in that United team for years has been central midfield. Mm. They got Casemiro almost by accident at the end of last year. I say by accident, but you know, it wasn't, wasn't the, didn't set out that summer to, to get him. And it worked, but um, there's, a, there's a worry, a natural worry about Casemiro's age. Uh, the signs that he might be starting to get to a point where he's maybe not going to be brilliant every week and he's certainly mm -hmm. not going to cover the big midfield spaces by himself. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But even if there's no worry about Casemiro, United surely to be a top team have to get into the habit of buying from that position of strength and not from position of necessity, which is what they've been doing for, for years. And Declan Rice was on the market, leadership, room to improve, someone to drive a team forward. I'd have thought every team, captain, captain, every team should have been, mm. every big team should have been out from every, every single big, maybe so without City, of Rodri, of course. Very true. But do, So both of you, in our preview show with um, Alison and Tom Roddy, Greg and I were talking about their signings and talking about Mason Mount, and he was a one of big debate mm. between the group of us, good signing or not good signing. Of the signings they've made then, are you underwhelmed? Is it a case that it's actually left them lagging behind? You know, Onana, you could say, solved the goalkeeper issue for him a little bit? I like Onana because I think United have been behind the other big teams because they've had an old-fashioned goalkeeper for too long. So they've joined the party. I think yeah. they needed to do that years ago. And he's a, he's a good option. Mount's a funny one. Um, not that he's not a good player, but I thought that Declan Rice would have fitted the, the need a lot better yeah. than another... Attack, attack and midfielder. Yeah, they. they um, I like Mount, but he's coming off a um, an absolute bummer of a season with mm. Chelsea. As are a lot of other yeah. Chelsea players, to be fair, and, and and they have started more brightly. But he is coming off of a a very draining season with Chelsea, mm. where things didn't go right, where there was a backlash against him being included in Gareth Southgate's England teams when he came on. It, it never seemed a popular decision. Everyone had. You know, he, he seems to have lost ground from from where he was a few years ago. Mm. And I can totally understand why Manchester United went for him. I can understand that because he's a good player. And if, if you're at Ten Hag, you'd be looking at him thinking, if we can get a tune out of this guy, mm. um, it, it moves us forward. But watching them the other night and knowing that the current England captain and quite possibly the future England captain, yeah. have both moved this summer and they are both players that have been... Declan Rice's family, certainly, were on the phone to West Ham all the way through last summer mm. asking, you know, have, have you heard from Manchester United yet? Have you heard from Manchester United yeah. yet? So, you know, they clearly thought there was something something happening there. Yeah. And the Harry Kane thing, I mean, the, the what I cited in the column was a conversation with Ed Woodward on a on a plane where we found ourselves sitting next to each other and I, I cannot tell you how delighted he was with that. <laughs> um, but um, 
But we had a conversation, and he was very candid about it. Mm. And what he said in that conversation was, you know, that he didn't see getting Harry Kane as beyond the realms of possibility. And his argument was that Daniel Levy likes a deal. We'll always, we'll mm. always do a deal. You know, with some clubs, you phone up and you say, well, how much do you want for so and so, and you can't get yeah. a, you can't get an answer. You'll get an answer out of Daniel. Yeah, so the, do you think you're talking about a slight missed opportunity here then? Do you think it's a lack of ambition from United at the moment in rela relation to how they've kind of looked at themselves, looked at the league? You know, you're talking about these deals, you're saying Declan Rice, his camp would have been interested, you're talking about Harry Kane, it's a big opportunity. Is that is that is it a missed opportunity or is it lack well, of ambition? If, if I could maybe, maybe give the Ten Hag view, which I do kind of understand. Yep. I think that guy's coming. Looks similar, so I mean, you know, that's, that's, he, he's got a great look, doesn't he? You know? Good beard, <laughs> nice hair. Um, he, he came in with so many problems to mm. solve, yeah. so many holes to fill, and so many ways in which he needed to adapt what Manchester United were to the kind of football he plays. So I understand he's looking at this thing and thinking, well, I need this, I need this, I need this, and, and I need this. And, and he's come at a time where, to touch Gregor's point, United are trying to budget, and mm. they were telling people at the start of the summer that signings would have to come within a sort of 100 million yeah. pound budget. So I think I can understand Ten Hag thinking he needs a goalkeeper, striker, and I said Mount is a slightly odd one. I, th I think the reason, and they weren't the only club that wanted Mount, it was all more availability and opportunity and just mm. thinking young English, brilliant pressing, everyone wants pressing, let's go for him. Um, but Ten Hag needs to make the decisions in terms of priorities. Mm. And that's, that's where Declan Rice comes in. Mm. Because I would have thought the priority absolutely is sorting out that engine room. And I think of the cup final where Man City just playing football at a different pace to United. And United's midfield were just so slow and couldn't, just couldn't cope at either end of the pitch, really. Couldn't get, couldn't get up, couldn't get back. Yeah, you talk about engine room and you talk about that pace. That, to me, was one of the most interesting things about watching Monday. You know, you try to l learn so much <laughs> and read so much into one game. But, Gregor, I found myself watching Monday thinking, this kind of could be Man United from any stage mm -hmm. of any of the last four seasons. You know, mm -hmm. this didn't look like a Man United that had had a full year of Eric Ten Hag had had a full pre-season and were suddenly new and vibrant and brilliant. What, what did you think in terms of on the pitch and their performance? Yeah, I mean, it, more worryingly almost is that that's kind of seen more to do with system, mm. systemic issues. Um, the way that Man United was getting carved open in the, through the midfield. Matthias Cunha just yeah. searing runs mm. through the centre of the pitch. But then if you look at the first weekend on a whole, you, you could say the same, there were issues with Chelsea and Liverpool about uh, you know how to kind of close up the midfield yeah. because everyone now plays with a front five. Yeah. But I'd say those two clubs just very quickly to go back at you on that have gone through a bit more flux than Manchester United have. The theory is that they've had the ten, full year of Ten Hag and then they've had a settled summer. Should they not be more further on, further progressed than that? Maybe, but I think he, we're trying to see the progress. Sorry, we're seeing the progression that he's trying to uh, enact in Man Manchester United, and part of that is is building from the back more, and uh, because they've got a new goalkeeper who can do it. Yeah. Um, and because a lot of teams now, I've mentioned it on, on, uh, on Monday, are playing with inverted fullbacks mm. to try and kind of assist the holding midfielder in, in you know, closing up shop when they're, when they're, when they're playing with it, you know, they're higher up the pitch. I'm not sure Man United have got that really option. They tried to do it a little bit with Luke Shaw. Um, but I, so that's the thing. I think it's like, it's, it's almost more worrying that their, their mm. systemic issues were kind of glaringly 
flawed in this opening game than the fact that they've missed out on players who you think are a club of Manchester United's stature you know, should be in the running to, mm. to try and sign. Mm. I love the inverted fullbacks thing. Because right. everyone, everyone sort of, oh, everyone goes, oh, you yeah. know, this one plays with inverted fullbacks and that one plays. Well, you go, so basically, this one copies Pep Guardiola. Yeah. Yeah. Pep Guardiola, because no one played with inverted fullbacks, mm. and then Pep played with inverted fullbacks, and now everybody plays with yeah. inverted fullbacks. You know, West Ham aren't going to do it under Moisey, don't no, they? No, <laughs> no they're not. We're, we're going to play with introverted fullbacks. You know, they're scared of their own shadow. The, uh... <laughs> we'll come on to West Ham and to Pep Guardiola later on, but just to finish on Manchester United, one of the big issues hanging over that club this summer is the future of Mason Greenwood, of course. Mm. Um, obviously, an incredibly sensitive situation to discuss. Martin, you've got some views, though, on the responsibility that the club has in the case of Mason Greenwood. I've always, I've always said this, that, that everyone talks about um, the responsibility the club has to make sure that um, whatever they perceive to be justice in these circumstances is done. But where they have got a responsibility is to a player, as he is now, that was a seven-year-old schoolboy at Manchester United. So they can't just chuck this to someone else. They can't just chuck this to Juventus and go, right, it's mm. up to you now to, to make this person, to rehabilitate this person mm. in society. It's, this is your problem. Mm. Because they have more, if, if, you know, the old Jesuit thing about give me, give me the boy and I'll show you the man or, or whatever, I'm, you know, mm. probably doing the Jesuit religion no favours <laughs> there whatsoever, but, but the, um, but they've had the seven-year-old boy, so they have got a duty um, to try to make him um, a member of society that behaves in the correct way. That is Manchester United's, I, th I think, and I've mm -hmm. always thought, that is Manchester United's responsibility. Looking at their statement yesterday, it seems that they might agree with that, mm. um, and that he could be coming back, but that he will come back in this very um, controlled way, shall mm. we say, uh, and that they will try to steer this um, in a way that is responsible. And I respect all of the other uh, is issues around mm -hmm. it. I respect, you know, but there's a lot of people that talk about how much they believe in, I don't know, rehabilitation mm -hmm. and redemption or whatever, but, but are then very keen on banning someone for life and stopping them ever yeah. playing football again. And you go, well, well, that's not actually the same as rehabilitation mm -hmm. and redemption and all of this. Um, there's an audio, we all know what we heard on the audio, we all know what we thought of the audio when we heard it. And if that is Mason Greenwood on the, on the audio, we will all have an opinion of that. Um, and it won't, be a, it won't be a high opinion. Mm. However, there is a duty on the part of Manchester United to see this through, if they can see this through, um, to a place where they take responsibility uh, for the man. Johnny, do you agree? That, it's, it's an interesting take and, and it does it does kind of meld with something I've been I've been thinking about it and it is this idea of, of rehabilitation, responsibility, transparency I suppose, which yeah. is which yeah. is where we are. So, you know, should Mason Greenwood come back, there's there's, there's a kind of narrow way of looking at uh, at it and there's a holistic way of looking at it, a global way of looking at it. The narrow one is 
you know, by employment law, by law of the land, blah, 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 can he, should he come back? And, and I think United are steering to the point where, where that, the answer to that is yes. But of course, the, the broader view is, is, should he come back in terms of, is he somebody that they as an institution want to see on the, on the pitch representing them? Is he someone that their supporters and their players are comfortable with? And by the way, I, fa- I find it insulting the idea that it's the women's team oh, that should be asked. Oh, the women's thing is ridiculous. Yeah. I find it insulting to women and I find yeah. it insulting to men mm. because it says only women can have an opinion about domestic violence. Yeah. You know? mm. Mm. Um, but I guess what I'm getting to is, of course he can come back, but who's comfortable with that? Who wants to see that? And if United have, have mounted this, have had this exhaustive investigation and think the answer to that is yes, I think they need to tell us what that investigation, without breaking the stuff around the anonymity of the victim, they, I think they need to lay that out. And I think Richard Arnold, their chief exec, needs to do a lot more than the intended video statement. I think he needs a press conference. Yeah. And ideally, I think we need to touch speak to Martin's point, I think they need to help Mason Greenwood back into the public domain if that's what they think is mm. right. And they need to get him to speak about this. Because mm. we do need, we do need. I, I think, to, to, for me to enjoy watching Mason Greenwood again and to have any confidence that this is the right thing, I need an explanation. I, mm. need, I need to hear from him. And as difficult as that is for a kid who's not a great communicator um, anyway, never liked the media to start with, but they have to help him do that. Well, they ha- and they have to help them. So they have to help their supporters. And until that point, I, I, I'm not going to feel comfortable with it. And I, would, I understand um, anyone who feels uncomfortable with it too. But I also understand there's another, there's another opinion. Yeah. It's just the. It, it, it reminds me a little bit of the clubs that have been. And I'm going to be careful here not to conflate Mason Greenwood with David Goodwillie in terms of what mm-hmm. they've mm-hmm. done or, or alleged to have done. Yeah. But the clubs that have tried to sign David Goodwillie since he was named as a rapist in, in, in a civil case in Scotland have all taken the same approach. They've signed him, and then it's been a like, can we get away with it? Mm. And then yeah. they back down when there's been a backlash. What mm. they haven't done is communicated first, asked people first, had an open process, and then discuss it. It's been, and, and United look like they're going down the route of, can we get away with this? Mm. Yeah. And that's not the right thing. Yeah, we, that's the thing, Manchester United, you do fear like they've not handled it well already yeah. and we've not, we're not at the conclusion yet. Yeah. Um, but I, look, Martin's point fundamentally is that he's going to return to playing football again. Mm. He will, because mm-hmm. he's too talented and mm. someone will see an opportunity mm. and, and take it. And for that reason, you do kind of lean towards it being the club that he has been with since he was seven years old and know him. And, and like, as he says, as a sort of bit of a responsibility mm. to to guide them back to being an upstanding member of society. And when I'm talking about rehabilitation, I'm talking about exactly the sort of thing there that, that, that Johnny is saying about about actually, you know, going public about uh, about certain mm. things and, and 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 you know representing the club and uh, allowing Mason Greenwood to represent himself and not yeah. not just uh, not you know right. a load of excuses and you know mm. subterfuge and you know sneaking back. Mm. You know, to actually be out in, in front of all this, because I can look, I, we can all understand, I think, that it's a problem for Manchester United, and it's yeah. not a problem that, uh, you know, 
you know, you've got marketing guys as chief executives and stuff like you know they're yeah. not necessarily used to, you know mm. no one um, at Manchester United you know Eric Ten Hag or whatever there's not a manager's playbook for what happens yeah. if a piece of audio is released that is absolutely abhorrent to mm. to anybody and, and and the suggestion is this is one of your players mm. in this audio you know there's there's no playbook for that no. so. I can appreciate that it's a really difficult issue for them, but if if um, the fact that we trust seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds with football clubs is mm. to mean anything, mm. then they have got to be able to take responsibility in a situation like this and say, this was our employee, mm -hmm. this was our teenager, this was our schoolboy, mm. right, we will we will sort this out. Yeah, certainly incredibly complex issue and you get the impression we'll hear more from Manchester United. That statement seemed like a kind of preemptive so. tease <laughs> to more, hearing more from them. Maybe they were trying to yeah. test the ground. Potentially, yeah. that is also potentially the case. Henry Winter has written about this situation on yeah. the Times website. You can read about that now. As I said at the top, just one of many issues that it feels like is hanging over Manchester United at the minute. I'm going to do the classic thing that all uh, <laughs> presenters get to do now and go, well, we've got to talk about Wolves. Because <laughs> they played Manchester United in that game, and as you said, mine, they played them off the park. Off the park, didn't they? they really I did. mean, they, we had this team that going into the going into this season, we thought they were going to be the chaos club. Mm. I was speaking to Charlotte Dunker, our Midlands correspondent, getting her to write a piece the other week saying we've got to tee this up. They're going to be they're going to be a car crash, and then they waltz onto the pitch at Old Trafford, one of the best teams of the opening weekend. Well, everyone's fighting out their lives. I was talking about this earlier. I would have thought. Most, I would have thought most chairmen, most owners, most managers, fans or whatever looking at it thinking, right, well, Sheffield United mm. uh, look as if they're going to be in trouble. Yeah. Luton Town, it's going to be very, very hard for Luton Town to stay up with yeah. their budget, the size of the club. So that leaves one existing yeah. Premier League team and everyone was sitting there feeling very smug yeah. thinking, well, it's going to be Wolves yeah. and we can nick into 17th and we'll be all right. And then suddenly you see Wolves and you go... Yeah. Oh, right, mm. we're, you know, we're in trouble because they don't look like Good. a bottom three team. No, absolutely. Johnny, you, Gary O'Neill, oh, you interviewed him last season. Yeah. A smart choice as manager? Unbelievably good choice um, and maybe a slightly fortuitous choice when you think of it's come around with yeah. Lopetegui leaving. But they stumbled on one of the managers of the year mm. who kept mm. an infinitely less talented squad at Bournemouth up and has immediately uh, got a pack a pattern, a character, a purpose to, to the Wolves side. You can, you can see his imprint straight away. He's, 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 a, he, he's a very driven, but also very kind of approachable, decent sort of guy. I think he'll go a long way. Yeah. Yeah. Wolves are incredibly lucky to have him. And Cunha, I mean... Mm. Chelsea will be Cunha's signing him next, won't they, pretty soon? <laughs> <laughs> well, only, only if Man United come in from yeah. first. Although, there was no yeah. goal. He scored Indeed. two goals Indeed. last season. I think that no one else in that yeah. Here comes Mr. Realist every time. <laughs> no, it's, it's, no, they were great to watch, but they, goals you still look at the team and say, where's the goals? It was the same yeah. last season. Yeah. I was reading in the last three seasons, they failed to score in 45 Premier League mm. games, which is more than any other team. He scored two last season. No one in the starting lineup scored more than two goals last mm. season for any other team. Fabio mm. Silva came back. He'd been on loan last season. I think at Anderlecht. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they look good, but... They still need the end product, and that's my worry for them. Everton are the same, aren't they? I mean, yeah. it could be like a record low-scoring team to yeah. to stay up. But it's funny how many teams are, are just... It's just the disappearance of number nines, isn't it? Yeah. So many teams are struggling in that department. Well, perf perfectly links me to the next topic, which is another team who are desperately in need of a goal scorer, and that's West Ham. Um, 
Martin, this is the first first part of the meet meet Martin Samuel. You get to I'm going to out you as a West Ham fan for the game podcast listeners, which pitch you perfectly against the senior chairman of the David but, Moyes fan club in Johnny Northrop. Like, like, so boys, not, 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 have at it. Moyes not. is shocking. You want Moyes out. Moyes is a legend. Just go Moyes out. <laughs> exactly. I've just got to say, I don't mind the, the the chairman of the David Moyes fan club, but you see, listen, I'm the secretary as well. Let's oh, not yeah. forget that. I love Moyes as well. Don't worry. No, but since you seem to be suggesting there's a divide between. David Moyes and the club, and that's outrageous. Well, not a divide between David Moyes and the club, but how do the fans feel, Martin? No, the, the way I would say the divide is, is I mean, you were just um, <laughs> citing uh, Gregor's realism as a, as a negative. I think as a, as, a, as a West Ham fan, what you wanted was for the coach when the Lucas Pakatar Manchester City thing was mentioned last week mm. you didn't want a manager that was saying well it's very hard to keep a bloke if Man City comes you it's, wanted it's someone though. it's true <laughs> I don't care whether it's true or not fans don't want truth I know, I know, I know. we all know football fans they don't want truth they want they, they, you know they want something that fits their worldview, which is a manager who turns around and says if Pep Guardiola tries to take Lucas Packard, I'll punch him right yeah. there. You know that, that's that's what you want from your from your manager, and I think there's a it's there's a it's it's quite deflated. They're very lucky West Ham this weekend they're playing Chelsea, because if you can't get sixty thousand people in the London Stadium mm. fired up and going like nutcases. Um, to beat Chelsea, then then you'll you'll never do it. Mm. But if that was a Burnley, and it was two 0 down suddenly, and Pakatar's mm. being sold, and Jesse Lingard is training with the club, you know, and, and, and stuff like that, it would be that atmosphere mm. that we can remember at West Ham from a couple of years ago. Because the difference between uh, West Ham and Brighton, who've both sold a midfielder, I mean, Brighton sold McAllister and, and Moses Caicedo. And um, they're not writing at Brighton. But West Ham fans were sold this vision, sold this vision that there will be a 60,000 stadium and they will be Champions League contenders. Now, we can, you can say it was oversold and you can say that was not realistic, but that's what everyone was buying into. And then they win a European trophy. Mm. It might not be the greatest European trophy, but it was a European trophy and everyone could see how big it was at, at West Ham. And... Then they sell the captain to Arsenal. So, okay, well, that's not the greatest, but um, that's not really uh, what's going to happen if you're going to try and get into the Champions League. But we've still got Lucas Pakatar. They've still got Lucas Pakatar, and he's Brazil's number eight, and he had an in-and-out season in his first season, but you can see there's a player there. Yeah, and we've, yeah. we've got him. If we can get someone around him, and, and then... Oh, and now yeah. that looks like he's going to Manchester City. And that's why there was such a sort of edge about West Ham mm. at the moment because it is the old cliche not as advertised. Johnny, you know Moyes, sorry Gregory, mm. Johnny, you know Moyes really well. How do you, how does he think he deals with that edge that Martin talks about? Because on the face mm. of it, you know, Martin cites some of those times when they yeah. got relegated, he saved them from relegation and then brought them that mm. trophy. And a lot of the things Martin's talking about are out of his control in some respects. Mm. Yeah. Um, how, how does he handle that edge of being in charge of a club like West Ham, do you think? Well, he doesn't. I mean, he doesn't want to sell Lewis Packetan. And, and I, I look. I understand what Martin's saying that you'd, you'd love him to come out and get all angry about it. Yeah. But given we've had a summer that there's been, let's say, um, tensions between certain parts of the club and, and other parts mm. in terms of who should come in and out, I, I think there's a sense of battle weariness there. Um, and I, he's 
this isn't this isn't what he may have felt was advertised when he won the Europa Conference mm. League. He may have felt this was a chance to, to, to build, and instead it's been a, I'd say, a typical West Ham summer in recruitment. I don't know if you, mm. you agree, and everything's been a bit kind of piecemeal. Mm. Um, doesn't hasn't been a sort of clear, uh, assertive no. transfer strategy. Um, every signing kind of almost has to be done case by case and begged for and, and so on. Um, how does he? How, I, I don't know. He wins matches. I mean, he, he's that's the only thing he can he can really do. It's the only thing he does do. Mm. He is in a different position to let's say Roberto De Zerbi when Caicedo is going from Brighton, and he doesn't have to justify it. He doesn't have to be a spokesman because I think Brighton fans understand that's the mm. that's the model. Um, but there's this there is this distance between where West Ham we've got the stadium we're going to be this, and then how the club acts. But I you would, you would expect me to say this. I don't see that as a David Moyes issue. I see that as coming from, from higher up. Maybe it'd be nice if, if, if someone else in the club addressed these things. I was at the press conference last Friday when he... When he you know, last season it was like Groundhog Day. Mm. I, covered the, I covered the European mm. tour and it was like, yeah. it's tough this balance in the Thursdays. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, God, you know, the same yeah, thing, right. same answers every week. Yeah. This time we turned up, there was Declan Rice, Pakata. Uh, the friction with Tim Stiden, the new technical director. Yeah. Mm. There was like so much to speak about. And he was positive. He was saying, look, the one thing I have to say is you cannot, West Ham cannot be accused of not trying to do things in the transfer market this summer. He said, we yeah. have tried, but the market has been crazy. Sometimes, you know, the prices were just not willing to go to. You know, there was also the accusation that West Ham should have tried to get a replacement for Rice before they sold him because everyone mm. knew he was going. This is it. Yeah, that's and true. He, he said, look, we, we have. So, it's it. You could tell, you know, his answer about Tim Stiden was was diplomatically put. You could tell he was saying, you know, he's come in from the Bundesliga. He had his targets. We there was one question. <laughs> it was like, you know, why why do you think uh, Alvarez, who came from Ajax, why do you think he's yeah. going to be okay? Well, we tried to go for Premier League players who knew the Premier League, but we couldn't get them. <laughs> so, so there is there is something there. And the problem is, West Ham they aren't committed. They aren't committed at like fully committed to David Moyes. They aren't fully committed to changing, you know, to go to getting Tim Stiden and getting a manager who maybe they have the same sort of yeah. strategy and viewpoint. They they just they don't feel like a club that's committed to anything, yeah. and that includes the manager. Yeah. yeah, Martin. Final word for you. Where, where do you see the season going? Obviously, last season Gregor alluded to it there. There was that culture clash between a European chase for a trophy and battling relegation ultimately. Mm-hmm. Where do you see the season going? I don't see it as being very different. I don't see West Ham as a, as a top half team because I just don't think it's joined up enough at, at West Ham. You know, you, I, I know you can't believe every single transfer rumour you, you, you hear or whatever, but you know, the new director of football is looking at this one at Bayer Leverkusen and that one at Bayer Leverkusen and this one at, and you're thinking, it comes from Bar Leverkusen. I mean, there are other, other clubs are available, you know, um, and and you know it, it's it's that sort of thing. You hear, oh, they were in for Harvey Barnes, but then somebody came in and said they didn't fancy Harvey Barnes, and you're thinking, well, who was that? Because I, you know, I'd take away his training ground privileges, basically. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, just give us the card, mate. You're not coming near the club again if you don't think Harvey Barnes is a player. Yeah. Um, you know, so it, it's. It's that sort of thing. uh, You need a philosophy. Chelsea, as mad as it seems, Mm. have actually got a philosophy. Mm. 
it might look at like a philosophy that should be accompanied by da 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 da, da, da but, it, <laughs> but, but it is a philosophy. All of this stuff about giving people these very long-term contracts that start off on low it's wages, and that, mm. it, 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 there, is a, there is a plan there. I'm not saying it works, mm. but they've got Muccio Pochettino in, and if anyone mm. can make it work, I think he can. And it is a philosophy. And with West Ham, a lot of the time, it's just too much push-pull mm. all the time. And David Moyes is in the middle of it. And so, you know, it's, a, it's facetious of me to say that he should be talking more bullishly because the, the man's a realist and I, I, I can appreciate that as well. But from a fan's point, I know, you know, I do know West Ham fans yeah. and, you know, they would just like sometimes someone to be turning around and saying, well... Mm. This guy hasn't got a price. That's what I thought from the very start. When they said when he started talking about, well, City haven't met our valuation for Paqueta. You wanted someone from West Ham to say there is no valuation yeah, for yeah, Paqueta. Yeah. We've already sold Declan Rice. We're not selling Paqueta. Johnny, final word for you then on Moyes. How do you see his season going? Are they um, intertwined? Will he still be there at the end of the yeah, season? Think, the big yeah. question. No, I think he will, and I think Gregor will go along to a lot more press conferences that remind him of last year. <laughs> yeah, <probably laughs> <right>. <laughs> now, talking about West Ham allows us to briefly mention a great fun story of the last 24 hours. 36-year-old former West Ham legend, should we say, Martin? Mate, he was to me. Yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I don't think I've seen many better players down there in that one season, that what one player? great season. Yeah. Dimitri Payet, that maybe explains the hero's welcome, unbelievable. Yeah. That yeah. Season. The hero's welcome that he's got in Brazil as he's joined Vasco da Gama. And that gives us the perfect excuse, Martin, for the second part of our Meet Martin during this show. <laughs> you get to tell us about a certain story of when you arrived with the right, press so, pack in Brazil. Yeah. So what's happened with uh, Pai? Dimitri Pai signed for Vasco mm. da Gama, who were a club on on the edge of the biggest favela in uh, Rio, and he's 36, and there were 5,000. Vasco da Gama fans at the airport. They had to close the airport for this 36-year-old guy um, to turn up. They're letting off fireworks inside the uh, at the airport. And it just reminded me, in 2000, we were there at the Club World Cup. And, um, and it, it, we went to this Vasco da Gama friendly because they just signed Edmundo, uh, the Brazilian national Edmundo, pronounced Edimundo, as we discovered that night. And um, they were playing Algeria in a friendly, and we were sitting there. We just bought tickets. There was about six or seven of us, and we went. All journalists. This all is journalists. The this is all journalists. Yeah. And so we're just sitting there. We're not in the press box. We're just sitting there watching the game. And behind the goal, mm. it was going crackers behind the goal, like flares, mm. banners, everything, because they're so excited about Edmundo. And I said, you know, with the with the with the keen understanding of a situation that, that I of. of, of developed over many years watching football. That looks fun. <laughs> Why don't we go over there and watch it and watch mm. it with that lot? That looks good. Anyway, so we sort of trooped around the ground and got into the like the Vasco, Vasco da Gama ultras end. Mm. Six of the whitest looking European looking it's people like Lee Clayton yeah, and yeah, Martin yeah. Lipton I think might have been there yeah. and you know. So yeah. we're all, all standing there yeah. like soaking up the atmosphere, thinking we'd make friends, yeah. you know, in that stupid <laughs> way that you oh we we you know, what they're seeing is <laughs> is A possibly Manchester United fans come mm. to a fight. Um, or B, people with watches on that are about six years, six years money in, uh, in, in Brazil, or six months money in Brazil, should I say. So we're over there and um, have worked out quite quickly that it's a hostile environment and it's not the, uh, the fan experience that, that we were hoping for. 
And um, so we started moving away. And when we moved away, they moved with us, like this little group of, oh, <laughs> group of about you know, 50 or 60 ultras. And I, can't, I still can't remember this part of it, how it actually happened, but we managed to communicate with the police that were in, in there that we were in serious trouble. And they managed to communicate with us that they will get us out, but they can only get us. I think there might have been one guy that spoke English, that we, they can get us to the perimeter of the stadium <laughs> but they can't go out into the street with us. So we are now going to be turned out into like a, basically a favela and you know being sort of followed by these people. So anyway, so we moved with these police about five minutes to go. Out the ground. At, towards the exit yeah. and about 50 to 100 people <laughs> followed us. And, and the police are going, we can't go any, any further than, than this. And you're just thinking, we're all going to die. This is this is this is, this is yeah. what's going to happen. We are all going to die, and basically, I've killed everyone. And um, and we and, and it was a minivan from the hotel that I was staying in, uh, which is in Ipanema, and they'd taken us to the ground, and we'd arranged to meet this guy on the final whistle. And I don't know how this happened. It, it could be you know, it could be a divine intervention or something <laughs> like that. I don't know why any of us deserve that, but because we'd come in round the other side of the stadium. There is no reason why, as the doors opened, we can see our, our minivan with glistening whatever hotel the, it, it is there the as these people light. have followed us. And we absolutely sprinted for this fan on the other side yeah. and they came with us and it was like literally just it last, last uh, train out of Dodge <laughs> or whatever and we were jumping on <laughs> these people were following us down the road and we sped off down the street and into the night and I didn't get, uh, I didn't get the... Uh, entire British press corps killed and, and uh, some people listen to, listen yeah. to this may think that was a bad thing. <laughs> but, um, are, you, are you sure they weren't Sunday supplement viewers? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they all wanted autographs. <laughs> well, <laughs> they'd still been chasing you for the while. I'm sure no, Dimitri Payet will enjoy <laughs> a slightly friendlier reception, it seems, <laughs> yeah, than oh, you yeah, and yeah, the yeah, rest yeah. of the British press corps. Now, if you're listening to the podcast <laughs> and thinking, hang on a minute, England's women are in a World Cup final. Why the hell haven't they talked about it? Don't worry, we've got a special show coming for you. I'm going to be speaking to Owen Slot and Molly Hudson in a special Women's World Cup final preview show, so keep your ears to the ground for that. Uh, gentlemen, we've got plenty still to talk about. We're going to be talking about Manchester City and Newcastle, and we'll be asking to Martin and Johnny about the scariest manager they've ever met. Stick with us. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Welcome back to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. I'm Tom Clark, and I'm joined today by Martin Samuel, Johnny Northcroft and Gregor Robertson. There's loads for us still to talk about in part two. Johnny, I wanted to ask you about a piece in the Sunday Times from last weekend. Uh, you met and interviewed Akil Housen, who ended the Premier League's 15-year wait for a black official when he ran the line at Sheffield United against Crystal Palace. Just tell us a little bit about the 32-year-old. What was he like and his ambitions within the game? Yeah, he was very young, actually. Yes. <laughs> I mean, he was very young, 32. No, I mean, fit as a fiddle and, and, and bright and sparky. Um, and it was... It was, a, it was a great, it was a privilege to do the interview. Because I, have, I have actually met Akil before, um, and I don't know if people realise how difficult it is for referees on the way up. Um, but until they get to that PJMOL level and they're professionals, <clears throat> you know, they have to make a living and they have to fit refereeing around sort of normal jobs. And Akil's been in, he's been a policeman in Leicester and, and he's worked uh, in security. So I met him when he was um, working as a bouncer at the Leicester Riders. Game. So we did have a sort of prior bit of history, um, and he has been, you know, like a lot of officials, somebody that wanted to become a footballer, wasn't quite good enough, went into refereeing at the age of 14, when his mother, and I met his mother, Patsy, Patsy Andrews, who's a local legend, she's a, another trailblazing referee actually, one of the very few black female officials that have got to any kind of level in this country, she got to level 6 and refereed sort of, you know, Leicestershire amateur football wow. at a reasonable level. And he told me, Akil told me that one day he, he, he was getting frustrated with his, with his team that he, wasn't, he was on the bench and he got in the car and, and mum was going to take him to training and she started driving in a different direction. He's like, where are we going? And she said, oh, you'll, you'll find out when we get there. Parked up outside a clubhouse in Corn, and she said, right, there's a refereeing course going on in there. On you go, son. And, um, and he sort of kicked off a little bit. And then he said, well, it was my mum. Uh, so, <laughs> so I went in. And that was, the start of a, that was the start of a journey for him. But what was really sort of valuable about meeting him, I think, and unpacking it all, is it has been 15 years since we've had um, a black official of, you know, whether right. assistant referee or referee in the Premier League, which is quite extraordinary. If we talk about representation, I think it's an even greater scandal than the lack of representation in boardrooms or, or on, in, in, in the dugout. I mean, 15 years without a single, a single one. Black, Asian or mixed heritage, it's, it's just extraordinary. There has, there's never been um, a black referee in the Champions League ever, which I find, again, I find incredible when you, you think about what football pretends is, is its mission in terms of inclusivity. But anyway, what was great about talking to Akil on this subject was he, he, he told me the whole journey and when people talk about unconscious bias, um, it can be quite a difficult subject to, to, to get across because some people don't understand it. I think some people want to think it doesn't exist. And what Akil was able to do was give examples and tell you how it does, how it does work. Um, and his problem, his biggest problem, I think, was coming through as a referee at level four, level three, which anecdotally is a, is a sort of barrier 
point for uh, um, for a lot of referees, where you're trying to transition from the start of men's football to higher up the ladder to maybe non-league. And he said he'd get like referee assessors would come and see him, and he's always been extremely fit, but he'd get average marks for fitness, really? and and they said to him things like, yeah, but you know when you're running it just looks very easy, so you know you're not working hard enough, and he's like asking what does that even mean? Yeah. What's being brought into play there? And why am I getting penalised for running easily? And he said that an ex-Premier League official actually told him, look, what you need to do is roll your head a bit and pump your arms out to make it look like you're working hard right. or something. Other things about like your body language, you're too relaxed, all these kind of prejudices, I suppose, or bits of baggage that were being brought into the journey. These little things along the way. And he told me about a shocking incident when he was doing role-play with his refereeing coach um, uh, in front of a whole load of other referees. And the role-play was supposed to be, you've got to pretend that there's an angry manager burst into your room and he wants to complain about the game and I'll take the role of the manager. And this guy, the coach, ended up screaming at him in this role-play, you're only getting promoted because you're black. And Akil said it was like, he was absolutely stunned, the room went silent. And... It, re- it felt like in the moment that this guy actually just wanted to get those words out there and this was an excuse mm-hmm. to do so. So you, you talk about someone about, about all of those experiences and you, you also think how difficult it is to become any kind of per- top person in football, referees in particular. Um, and he said when he, when he got the news that he was, he was being promoted, and by the way, he was in the championship for 10 years doing very well as an assistant, so he's had to wait even at that level a long time. But, but he said he cried, you know, and he said, and he said, I said to be honest, I still get a bit tearful when I think of it, and it helped me understand why. It's an amazing story. You can read it mm. on the Times website now. Just on the mm. subject of pathways mm. and referees, Gregor, is it talked about amongst ex-pros? You know, you played at various different levels of the football league. I think you know, us as journalists sometimes look at refereeing situations, and it's the same across a lot of sports. You know, it'd be great if people who played the game then transitioned and went into officiating. Is it is it discussed, or do they all sit around going, "I hope I can get a job on the game podcast like you, mate"? <laughs> um, it became uh, I know a couple of players who who did the training. Really? Yeah, because uh, the PFA did start to kind of to push it, particularly on players who played in the lower leagues. Yeah, did because they'd be more open to doing it. No. No. I mean, he wanted to come and work with you two. That's of course, good. yeah, that yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, that goal's not achievable for everyone. No, that's true. No, but no, you, say, really, you, you say they did the training, but then... No, no, I mean, they've, dropped they've gone into coaching. Right. So, mm. it's still a... I don't know, I still think it'd be a brave individual who's a former player who would, who would take that step. I think it will happen. I think it probably is happening, actually. I think there'll be some people who are on that kind of pathway, but um, just because you know what, what you're in for... <laughs> do you think there's still a, like a kind of them and us feeling to referees and players or do you think that's closing up definitely yeah. yeah I mean I wrote a piece a few years back about mm. anyone who's not played the game there's like there's still kind of feeling that they don't know what they're mm. talking about to the same degree and that absolutely yeah. counts for footballers yeah. some managers I played for would just be so scathing towards yeah. referees and, and fourth officials And do you think that would then stop you know, as you get to retirement, you know, you're in your club of ex-pros. You don't want to be kicked out of the club I by going and being a referee. Mm. No, no, well, I, I think it would help their kind of, kind of having a bit of kudos on the pitch. And, you know, certainly people would be less willing to sort of call someone a school teacher in a derogatory mm. fashion, saying that's what your, your expertise is in. I know managers who would 
say that all the time, mm. and it's, I think it's the same as in coaching, and it's, I, I don't think it's fair. I haven't been on this side of the fence now for a little while. Um, but there's a, if, you're, if you're a coach who goes into, uh, uh, into the kind of professional ranks and you've not had a playing career, you've, you've got a barrier to overcome. And that's been knocked down by ser several high figures, but it's still there. Mm. And absolutely, it would be the same in referee. Yeah. Mm. And, and in other sports, it, it, it comes from a, a basic respect for the official that is there in other sports, but it, it is not there in football. The way that, you know, the, this uh, opposition to having referees mic'd up mm. or whatever is in part because they don't want to hear how referees are actually spoken to. They don't want the fans to hear how referees are actually spoken to on a football field. Whereas when you mic up a, a, a rugby referee and the first thing you hear is the captain going over and saying, sir, you know, if he's got anything to say, it starts with the word sir, sir this or sir that. And, and you know, that, that is not going to happen in football. And they're terrified of uh, they're terrified of people hearing the disrespect that's shown. And if you talk to anybody who played football and rugby, like some of my lads did and uh, and stuff, the way they talk to the football referees uh, is completely different to the way they talk to the rugby referees. But it's the same individual doing the talking. Yeah. You Absolutely know, fascinating. Uh, it's, it's just a, a complete difference between the sports. Yeah. Well, not for the first time this season, we've already stumbled on a subject that I think we could do an entire podcast yeah. show mm -hmm. on. So yeah. keep yeah. keep your eyes peeled. Maybe we'll have a game podcast special on refereeing at some point this season. But we've got to move on to talk about the title decider. Second week yeah. of the season. <laughs> Second week of the season. Week of the season. Manchester City v Newcastle is going to be the Premier League champions, aren't they? Uh, we joke, but do we? Slightly. Everyone's already thinking <laughs> about it. Martin? What are your views of well, this it game could going be. It could, you Look, you don't know. Saturday, who knows what it's going to be. It could mean absolutely nothing. Come May, you could be looking back and saying, I'll tell you what, that result on August the 19th, <laughs> second Saturday in the season, that's, that's when it all flips. I do think that the next few months, if, if someone is going to topple Manchester City, it's the next few months when they haven't got Kevin De Bruyne yeah. that is where you've got to make hay. And I know Arsenal did last season, uh, you know, and, and then got slowly reeled in. But um, losing Gundogan, losing Mahrez, you know, it might not be the same Manchester City this season. I mean, Cole Palmer looks a bit of a player, but it might not be the same Manchester City this season. So now's the time when you've got to take advantage. And, you know, Eddie Howe and Newcastle, that looks a good team. That really yeah. does look a good team. And so they go there on, on Saturday. If you, can get a, if you can get a point out of, out of that game and you're Newcastle, who knows where that leads towards the end of the season, particularly if in the next few months City drops some uh, points that you didn't expect them to because they're their best outfield player down, with all respect to Erling Haaland in terms of creation and goals and assists and all of that. Um, I think it's a, I, I do think it's a significant game, and that's not that's just saying oh it's only these two that are in it, but I think it's a very significant game. Do we think the significance is far more based on Newcastle and their rise and that first win against Villa? You know, I've been speaking with Martin Hardy, our North East correspondent, about his preview to this game, and it's all Newcastle. It's all about how mm. I think it's an amazing stat they played 18 times at the Etihad, only got a point once back wow. in 2004-5 when he, Martin quizzed me over the phone, and I was thinking. Who the hell scored that goal? Alan Shearer. Alan yeah. Shearer, remember yeah, when he yeah, used yeah, to play yeah. football? <laughs> Unbelievable. I couldn't believe it. But do you feel like, Johnny, it's more about them and City will kind of just sit there and go, come on, 
come on, you're going to come at the king. You got to, you yeah. got to come. You got to go a little bit. I mean, and, and City are, um, they can manage a, a season. And to, you know, as Martin said, they they will. They we know they finish really well. They'll grow if they if they if they do lose. They'll, they'll they've got time to try and make it up. On the flip side, Newcastle, yeah, if, if they're going to be this season's Arsenal, now is the time, and before the Champions League campaign starts as well. Um, and it's about momentum. They're in such a good moment. They have all the tools to trouble Man City. You know, mm-hmm. they, they, they are so dynamic, pressed so um, ferociously. The Harvey Barnes has added to a retinue of really pacey players that can get behind defences. Tenali, exceptional energy great all-rounder exactly the type the, 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 there's a sort of feel of those really good counter-pressing teams about them like, like a Liverpool of a few years ago and that's the type of team that does trouble City from time to time if they can get it right um, so yeah it, 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 is Eddie Howe thinking about the title I wouldn't have thought so just he, he's, prag- he's a pragmatic yeah. manager but but it's about progress for them and my goodness me going and beating City at the Etihad what he should be saying with players this is this is the moment yeah, we can let's do this. Lay down a marker, Greg. Gregor, you've had your say on Newcastle on Monday show. When it comes to City, obviously mm. won another trophy with the Super Cup win on penalties. You know, how do you look at their squad? Martin referenced Kevin De Bruyne out for four months. Does it feel like they're a little bit light? Is it strange to say that about Manchester City? Phil Foden has been pretty inconsistent, I would say. Struggled with injuries, of course. Cole Palmer, yes, he's exciting, but you wouldn't be expecting City to be going. Or oh, this kid's coming through is going to save us for the next four months, do you think? They, they look weaker, absolutely. For the, for the two players that Martin referenced who've left and now for De Bruyne being missing, um, they definitely look weaker. I wouldn't say light, I'm not sure Manchester City could, score, <laughs> could ever look light, but they look weaker and <coughs> Newcastle are one of the teams who look stronger. I, I, I agree, I think the title's going to be too far for them, but I'm also heartened, if that's the right word, to see some of the the areas I've sort of referenced in the preview show that are clear weaknesses in terms of the step down from the quality they have at centre-half and left-back. They're trying to get Lewis Hall from Chelsea, although it's an mm. eye-watering £30 million pounds mm. for a player who's played 12 games, I think, mm. first-team games. But they need a, they need a left-back. Yeah. I don't think they can have... They listened to you on Monday. Maybe, you said it. Maybe, you, said yeah, it. Yeah, maybe. you said they need a left-back. I think they need a centre-half. But apart from that, we spoke about it the other, the other day. The competition now is... is Pretty fierce for, for, for starting places in that team. I think people, someone was saying to me, oh, the thing is they'll get distracted um, by the Champions League when they're in the <coughs> Champions League. And you say, well, you've got to remember how long it is since they won the title. No one in that city is going to be telling anyone in a black and white shirt, oh, don't worry about the league, all we're interested in yeah. is the Champions yeah, League. Yeah. You know, it's nearly a century, isn't it, since they last won the league. You know, that, that city wants to win the league. Um, and you know the Champions League will be great and I was there when they drew three all I think it was with Barcelona mm-hmm. and that was an atmosphere to behold it really was but they're not going to get they're, they're not going to get stars in their eyes about the Champions League and, and, and let the league go and Eddie's the sort of manager that will make sure that doesn't happen as well yeah well we're talking about this test for Newcastle um, so test for you guys now Bill Edgar each week is doing his Premier League quiz 
Gregor's worried. He's like, you didn't prep me. Gregor's like, you didn't prep me for this. What's going no. on? Like, like, it's only it's one so question. Awkward. It's oh, only God. one question. Bill Eggers, fiendishly difficult quiz. But I think this one is gettable. So now Newcastle lost only once in the first six months of last season. Which team inflicted that defeat and were also responsible for Newcastle's second loss in mid-February? Last season. This is a good podcast. Total Come on. <laughs> I was going Just for, what you want in a podcast. It's I was going for an immediate answer. Go on, someone shout Simon a team. For a minute. Shout a team. Oh, Sound like Brentford? No. Nope. Go on, Gregor. Three, two, one. Wolves. No. Martin? Uh, I, I, honestly, I, I'm, I'm not. I told you it was difficult. I yeah, told you it was difficult. The answer is Liverpool. Liverpool. Right. Liverpool. Okay. One of the only okay. teams to beat. Newcastle yeah, we could, can we edit that one out? At the, no, no, no. We need can we, can, we, can, that, can that, that stunned mullet gap. silence go Give in the editing stage? Now, <laughs> <laughs> is everyone is everyone start tapping their headphones? Going, is it the bloody why the Bluetooth's gone again? I tell Honestly, you what, it just goes to show what happens when you don't prep a bunch of journalists. Exactly. Yeah. Give them a quick. Tell one of us Liverpool, and then and then the other two. Two seconds of silence, and then someone jumps in and goes Liverpool, and that's it. And when we can, I'll keep that in mind for next. Week, yeah, but thankfully do. I have prepped you for this final bit right, of the show yeah, where we're yeah. going to get I've to know you a little bit more uh, as it's your first show <laughs> be with us every Thursday of the season but Johnny these questions are coming for you and Gregor mm. for you also in a slightly different tone mm. Martin we want to know the scariest managerial encounter that you've had in your long career I, I don't career. find too many of them scary I must oh, come admit. On. no no I don't find too many of them scary I, I, I had some uh, some confrontations which people um probably know about. One of them ended up on breakfast television when everyone thought me and Alex Ferguson had come to blows. That was on the same trip, funnily enough, in Brazil. Mm. So the first time mm. Alex ever went for me in a press conference, that was because she didn't know it was coming. Uh, I didn't really... I, I worked in Manchester when he just started in, like, 86. Right. Um, so I didn't know him that well, and I didn't know this thing of him exploding at you at a press conference. <laughs> and... Um, so that came as a, as a surprise. Uh, that was, I want to say, in 97. It was over a piece I wrote about Roy Keane when he got injured against, uh, against Harland that time. And I wrote a piece in the Express that said, is this guy going to grow up? Because, mm. you know, making the point that Harland, what, uh, that Keane, you know, was in a different class to Harland. Harland, what has he got involved in this vendetta on the pitch for and ended up injuring himself? What I didn't know was that he was out for the season. Mm. Um, Alex did. Alex was very um, upset about this and went for me. And he was a Daily Express reader as well, which was, you know, you know, there weren't too many of them left by that stage, but he was one of them. And uh, yeah, he was. He did. And so, um, and so he went for me, and that was that was uh, that was quite intimidating. But then you learn to. to just sort of you dodge, ride, dodge the, the kips of tea then he saw me at racing once with all my family and my dad was there and my brother and all of our kids were there and stuff like that and after that we had a lovely relationship or whatever because mm-hmm. he realised I wasn't that different and um, Joe Kinnear Joe Kinnear and I it, again Joe wasn't scary he was just you know that time when he had a go at everybody uh, at Newcastle and there was some spectacular mm. language and it got quoted on the back pages of the paper if you haven't been called that word by Joe Kinnear at some <laughs> stage in your career, you, you really haven't been doing your job properly. I mean, it started in the... My one with Joe started in the, um, 
in the car park at, at, at Crystal Palace, at Sellers Park, when Wimbledon were, were, were ground sharing there. It started in the car park. It then went up three flights of stairs. This is him chasing you, is this? Uh, no, this is, this is him having a go at me yeah, right. and me going back at him. Uh, because by then, you'd learn that you, you just answer Don't back. It, you yeah, answer yeah. back. You, that's what you do. So he was having a go at me, Joe. I was having a go back at him. We went up, we left the car park, we went up these sort of staircases, about three flights of staircase, and burst to get, burst through the doors of the press conference, still shouting at each other uh, at the top of our voices. And, he, and the last thing he said to me, I'm not, answering, I'm not answering any of your effing questions or whatever. So, okay. so I stood there and I let two or three questions go, mm. then I asked a question. Joe's a good guy, <laughs> just answered it. <laughs> and that was it. And I, 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 like, I really like Joe. I really like Joe. Ever the showman. Johnny, yeah. well, Sir Alex, can't be, can't be you. He must surely had a favouritism mm. for you, being a Scot. Fergie? Uh, no, no, look, we, we, we had a good relationship, but we also had our moments where yeah. he shouted at me and I yeah. quivered quite a lot. Yeah, yeah. So um, that's the scariest, is it? Well, yeah, look, Fergie is the scariest, I suppose, but um, the original manager that scared me, I think, was Walter Smith, because... Before I came down to England, I, yeah, that was my beginning in Glasgow. So we're talking like mid to late 90s. And Martin will remember this time in journalism where there weren't really press officers. So if you wanted an interview, you, you spoke to the manager, didn't yeah, you? If you wanted right. anything, yeah, you spoke absolutely. to the manager. So Walter was this gatekeeper as well as being the king of Scotland because he was on his way to nine in a row. So if you wanted an interview with the Rangers player, you phoned Walter on his, on his mobile and you said, I'd like to speak to Eric Bo Anderson. Why do I do that, son? And you'd say, well, don't speak about his dog. All right, okay. You know, <laughs> uh, there was a story about Eric's dog. So, he, but he was, he, was, he was, Walter was this great combination of, of your kind of like favourite teacher and the teacher you were also the scaredest of. And I remember doing an interview um, outside the change, I speak to a player outside the changing rooms at Rangers. And Archie Knox, who's his assistant, walked past. And Archie you know, basically a bit of dressing room banter, expletive laden banter to this player and the pair of them were sort of answered back. Now I was in that sort of phase as a young journalist where maybe you've read, I don't know, too much kind of student-y stuff and yeah. I thought, yeah, I'm going to get all this industrial language into my piece. So, you know, the whole intro was about Archie saying F and this and this and that and that. And then I went to Rangers on the Friday and um, Walter had the best poker face you've ever seen uh, so when I answered her question she looked at me and went afterwards son you just, <laughs> just go oh my word what's happened now so I went to see Walter after the press conference and he said uh, do you understand Archie's, Archie's wife read your piece she's embarrassed she's got to go out and see her friends and you've got Archie swearing in the paper and I'm thinking if she doesn't know that Archie swears come on she's <laughs> yeah, not well. yeah. but anyway so he gave me the, you've got to go and speak to Archie and You've got to go and say sorry for this. So yeah, yes, Walter, yes, Walter. So he marched me down the corridor and knocked on the dressing room door, and there was Archie who came out in his shorts. And Walter would go, go on, son, go and apologise. And it was the most excruciating conversation mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. I had to go, I'm really sorry, Archie, for saying that you swore. And, and he was like, he was, he was like, he was really sort of shame faced. He's like, Ugh. and then I could just see Walter in the back and just end himself absolutely because <laughs> he had a great sense of humour as well walking away sniggling yeah I'm sure you learnt a lot from that now Gregor I'm going to let you be either manager that you saw tear strips off a journalist when you were a player or manager that scared you as a player well I, 
I played for Joe Kinnear, so it made me right. think about uh, I was at Forest. Just remembering the, the time at Newcastle when he called uh, Nzogbia Insomnia. Yeah, remember? Insomnia. And he wanted, I think he wanted to leave yeah, and stuff. Yeah. Well, I knew that that was not intentional because he used to call me George. <laughs> <laughs> and he'd like, he'd, he'd, he's like, he'd, he'd yeah. never get anyone's name right. It was yeah. awful. But the scariest one would probably be Chris Wilder because uh, he had enough menace to, to make you think it might even tip over towards violence. Right. Like, there was one game where he... <laughs> We were supposed to have our Christmas too, and we we got beat by I think it was Plymouth Argyle, and it, you know every, everyone's seen a, a tactics board being be punched off, but he managed to connect and volley it like on the way down before it hit the floor, <laughs> so it's coming waving through the floor this tactics board towards us sitting there, and uh, instead of letting us do our Christmas too, he he uh, he got us in at half eight the next morning, sorry eight o'clock the next morning, just to run laps like on a Sunday the day after a game, so he was. I only played for him for a year, but there's a few stories you could tell about Chris Wilder. He had that real menace about there, him. There's one I've just thought of. It, it doesn't concern me, but when uh, I was at a, another newspaper many years ago, John Lyle, genial oh, John Lyle, was the West Ham manager, and one of our guys wrote that he was going to be sacked the following day. Um, and he wasn't. And at the next time there was a... It was a West Ham press conference. He called the newspaper's representative to one side and he said, this, this guy, this guy that had written this story, he said, you know him, your colleague? Well, yeah, of course, he's a, he's a colleague. And he said, uh, has he got a family? You've got to let this one play out. Right? He said, has he got a family? Oh yeah, he's, he's married. He said, "Do you want any kids?" He said, "Well, his uh, his wife's expecting a baby." Oh, he said, uh, "Tell him to remember what he did to me." He said, "No, that is kids born." Right now, Jesus. now hold on, hold on. Before before the Lyle family closed the Times podcast down, <laughs> what he means is that when you write a story yeah. that says a man is about to yeah. be sacked. Yeah. His family reads that, mm. and it has an effect on the family. This is what he means. Mm. What it came across like was <laughs> Bob Hoskins in the Long Good Friday. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it came across like, and yeah. you know, like it was that. that and if, if you if you can remember John Lyle's voice, it would have been in that sort of slightly East End slight voice, whisper. you know, like that like <laughs> slight whisper, a little bit, you know, softly spoken, yeah. And it remains one of the darkest things oh, I've ever heard. But he doesn't mean it like that. He, he means <laughs> the toll that a, uh, a story like that has on, so has on the manager's tales. family. Great, great tales. And as you can see, listeners, it's a tough job being a sports journalist. So make sure you keep buying the Times. Uh, if you want to read more of our journalism and keep funding our bodyguards that we need to go to all of these press conferences, <laughs> oh, yeah. go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. You'll get a pound subscription for three months. Martin, Johnny, Gregor, thank you for joining me. Martin, we'll see you next Thursday. Johnny, I hope you see you very, very soon. And Gregor, we'll see you on Monday. Thanks for listening. We'll see you then. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. 
Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone.